Uh, David Kinnaman, who works with the Barna Research Group, uh, they have uh, adopted a phrase, and I may have shared this with you before, I don't remember, uh, to describe our current culture. They, uh, current culture they talk about as being accelerated, complex, marked by unlimited access, networking, uh, profound alienation of people. This was before the pandemic, so uh, even more heightened now. And a crisis of authority, like who do we listen to? Where do we find answers? Again, things that have been heightened in our current situation. And, and they have said that uh, it's in the midst of this that there are a number of different responses. Some people have become prodigals with regards to the Christian faith. They've left the Christian faith. Some people have become nomads. They are, are sort of wandering between ideology and all of these other things. Some people are still filling a seat in church. They call them habitual churchgoers. Uh, but there's not really any engagement the rest of the week. It's one hour a week and, and that's it for regards uh, with regards to life. Uh, others, they, they say, and this is a, the smallest group of all, 10% um, of the people that they have uh, interviewed, uh, surveyed, call themselves uh, resilient churchgoers or resilient disciples. Christians who attend church regularly, uh, trust firmly in the authority of the word, committed to Jesus personally, affirm that he was crucified, raised from the dead, conquer sin, and they express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. Uh, and this is what I want us to press into today. Like, what, what does it take to be a, a resilient disciple in the context of a world that is accelerated, where there's in a crisis of authority, profound alienation, uh, this unlimited access. Recently ran across an a illustration where a guy is talking about the landscape of the world that we live in. And he says, imagine that at one time, the, the Christian life, you think about it in terms of balls. Maybe some of you have played uh, dodgeball in a gym. And so you've got uh, the gym full of balls. And at one time, the, the Christian ball was the biggest ball in the room. Uh, and, and then over time, some of these other balls started to be introduced, but they were much, much smaller. And then about the time of the Renaissance, uh, the, the ball of secularism grew and the ball of Christianity sort of shrank. And uh, there was this battle between secularism and, and Christianity. Uh, but the, even that has changed now. Now there are all sorts of different balls. There, there are big balls and little balls and footballs and rugby balls and you know, all sorts of balls. You've got Islam and you've got Buddhism. You've got uh, ideologies like scientism and uh, secularism and pluralism. And, you know, all of these different things. And, and it's all a big competition. And this is where we live, and this is what we're asking the question, how do we become resilient disciples in that context? 
And this is one of the reasons why we're looking at Elijah and Elisha, because they were a very polytheistic, uh, many gods society. There was the battle between Yahweh and Asherah and Baal, the river gods, the valley gods, the gods of the mountains. You know, all of these things were, were in competition with each other and were asking the question of how to be a resilient disciple. And so I want to walk through this story this morning and uh, notice three things. The situation as a whole, the context, uh, what's at stake in this story uh, because it's really significant and then uh, draw some application from it what can we learn the first two i want to group together so what's the situation and what's at stake so the situation is as we see uh, that god's word is actually making some inroads in their circumstance if you remember back to first kings 19 elijah thought he was the only one left you remember that uh, he had this battle against Baal, and uh, God showed himself to be strong, but Elijah didn't see any changes in the culture, and so he thought he was the only one left, and he, he ran, and he said to God, it'd be better if I would die, but God said, no, I, I have disciples, and, uh, and then gradually we've seen this sort of building of the sons of the prophets to the point now where in verse 1, we're told that the, the, place where they the place where they were living, it was too small. Uh, they needed a capital campaign. They needed a building project. They, they needed to expand their sanctuary or the place where they were dwelling in order to accommodate the growth that was happening. We saw in 2 Kings chapter 4, they had regular things like new moons and Sabbaths where they would come together. God's word was doing something in the midst of uh, polytheistic pagan Israel uh, where it was establishing a beachhead and it was, it was growing. In the midst of this, though, they decide to go down to the Jordan and build on the waterfront. Now, that can be a good idea, although if you've been along the shoreline of Lake Michigan, you realize that it has its perils as well to build on the waterfront. And, uh, and here we see one of the perils of building on the waterfront of the River Jordan. Uh, in order to build the place that they needed to build, they, they needed some implements to fell some trees, uh, put them together, make them into the shelters where they were going to live. And the sons of the prophets uh, were, were not necessarily wealthy people. You remember that from, I think it's 2 Kings 4 as well, where the, uh, the widow of one of the sons of the prophet is facing a creditor. They couldn't pay their debts. So these sons of the prophets borrowed uh, an axe head in order to fell their trees. And in the process of building, um, it flies off and it goes into the Jordan River. Now we realize that our, uh, iron doesn't float. Uh, it went to the bottom. Now in our context, that's not a big deal. I mean, you lose a hammer, you lose a, an axe or a hatchet, that kind of thing. We're like, well, that was a bummer. We might go to our toolbox and, and pull out one of the three others that we have there. Or we can run to Lowe's or run to Home Depot or Ace or wherever and, and we can get a replacement relatively inexpensively. Uh, but this wasn't the case there. 
One commentator says, you know, contextually, think about an iron implement this way. Uh, it's like you borrowed your, your, uh, your friend's Lexus and, and you took it out and you crashed the Lexus. Uh, that is the equivalent of losing an iron implement. They were very expensive. They were not easily replaced. And so it was a great tragedy when you lost something like that because there, there just weren't a lot of these around and it had great value in their, uh, in their society. So the situation is, it's a time of growth for the church, uh, but a challenge has come into the church because of the loss of this iron implement. So why is that important? What's at stake with this? Well, I believe that there are two things that are at stake here. And you really get it when you see the, uh, the son of the prophet cry out. And he says, alas, my master, verse 5, it was borrowed. What's at stake? Well, there are two things. The, the first is this, just within the community. I've already mentioned that the sons of the prophets weren't part of the wealthy or the elite class. Uh, they were servants of God. They depended upon uh, the grace of people in the church and others to, to support their work and to keep it going. Uh, they did not have personal resources on their own to cover the loss of this Lexus or this axe head. Uh, they were at the risk of the creditors. Uh, we saw that in Second. Kings chapter 4, when the son of the prophet died and they owed this debt, they couldn't repay it. And so the creditor was going to come, was going to take the sons and put them into servitude uh, to pay the debt. And that was a just thing. There was nothing unjust about a creditor coming to say, hey, I loaned you this, uh, you didn't return it, and so therefore uh, we're going to make arrangements for you to pay this over the, the long haul. But this, of course, is a very scary thing for this son of the prophet uh, to be facing the creditors and, and to have the potential to have his life or the life of his family be in jeopardy. And of course, this would threaten the internal life of the, the community as well. I mean, they've engaged this building project together and, and now their community stands threatened because they've lost this iron implement. Secondly, not only the internal community is threatened, but also the reputation of uh, the Christians who are doing the work here anachronistically, God's people, uh, the prophets. Uh, they don't want to be spoken bad of. Uh, this is one of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is, is the call to be well spoken of by outsiders. When we look at the, the qualifications for an elder, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he must be uh, well spoken of by outsiders so as to not bring shame upon the work of God. And so here you have the sons of the prophets. If you loan them things and, and they lose them, if they're crashing cars and losing axe heads and all of those types of things, well, that's not a very good, it doesn't reflect very well on, on who God is and it doesn't very, reflect very well on the dependability of the people to whom you are loaning. So 
at stake, we have a threat, not only internally with the people of God and what might happen to one of their number, but also externally, the reputation of the people of God and what might people begin to think about these people who serve God and the God to whom they serve. When we, when we understand this situation and when we understand what is at stake, we can begin to see how this comes into our life. I mean, we, we live in this situation where there are many balls in the gym. And everybody is looking at uh, one another, and, and we stand there with our Christian faith, and, and people are looking at us, and they're asking us, how are they responding? How are they loving one another? How responsible are they? Is there a consistency in their life? So we feel the same sort of pressure that this nascent community was feeling here at this time. We, we feel that pressure of the world looking in around us. And what's so interesting to me is that you know, this is an axe head. Now, it had a lot of value in, in that day, and I think we've already established that. But it's a very unspiritual thing. I, I mean, there, there's nothing particularly spiritual about an iron implement. Uh, and it seems to me like that is often the way we are threatened in our, our, our discipleship. We're, we're threatened by these unspiritual things. I, I've seen it in churches, and I'm sure you have too. You know, some of our deepest divisions and conflicts come over things like, what color carpet are we going to have? Or are, are we going to paint this room or not? There's nothing really spiritual about the color of carpet. Uh, we can agree on that as long as we don't bring back anything too, uh, too garish, right? Uh, but uh, there's nothing particularly unspiritual. But when these things happen, it brings out things that are inside of us. And, and they can be a real challenge for a community when it comes around, not only in terms of the outside world, but also in terms of uh, our inside world. Think about it even in terms of your own life. You know, some of you, like me, I, I am completely terrible when it comes to cars. Uh, and so when the car breaks, I, I am just at a loss and I've, I've got to take it in. And that can be a very frustrating thing. There's nothing spiritual about my car, but something going wrong with my car can affect me at, at a deep, deep level uh, in terms of my own relationship with God. I think that's one of the things that we see here with this situation that we have, what's at stake inside, outside ourselves, inside, outside the church. Uh, we recognize that the little things in life can affect our discipleship as we seek to follow after Jesus. So, what's the answer? Like, how do we go forward? Like, what do we learn actually from this story that can help us lean into that resilient discipleship 
that we desire. Well, I want to suggest to you that there's actually four things that we learn, and I've divided them into three categories. We have things that we learn about God. These are theocentric things, uh, things that we learn about Christ, Christocentric, and then things that we learn about our life as humans, uh, anthropocentric things. So, uh, or theocentric, Christocentric, and anthropocentric. Things about God, things about Christ, and things about life. The first thing is this. What we learn about God, or what we're reminded here about God, is that He is, uh, he is completely sovereign over all things. Remember, this is a polytheistic world that they're living in. Everything uh, had ascribed deity to it. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 3 when they were fighting the Syrians, the Syrians said, well, we fought them in the hills, but their God is a God of the hills. Therefore, let's fight them on the plains where we'll do better. But then God showed up that he was the God not only of the hills, but also of the plains. Well, the... Uh, the Israelites and the influence of polytheism in their day, they believed that the rivers were gods as well. And so here as Elisha comes and interacts with this axe head in the river, where he, and these are all the hallmarks of a miracle, right? There is, there is a, a counterintuitiveness to the laws of nature. So he cuts the stick, throws it in the water, and, and the iron begins to float. We recognize that Yahweh can determine, uh, can go over the laws of the river. Why? Because he is supreme over the river. The river cannot contain the problem that is facing the community. Uh, my wife reminded me the other day of a, of a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon says that God's sovereignty is the pillow on which I rest my head. Uh, his sovereignty, the fact that he is king, that he is Lord over all. Sometimes we think about sovereignty just in terms of his plan, but it really speaks of his kingship. And, and, and here we are reminded of that, that in a world where, where rivers and mountains and valleys are seen to have power, in a world where science and politics and government are seen, seen to have power, God is sovereign over all of them. That is the pillow on which we rest our head. We become so bound up in our hearts and our souls because of our health, because of uh, the, the cultural climate in which we live. All of these different things in this uh, gym that we live in filled with all kinds of different balls threatening to take control. But God is sovereign over it all. God does not lose control. He'll never lose control. And we absolutely need to adopt this Spurgeonism that God's sovereignty is the pillow on which we rest our heads. So this, this is what we learn about God here in this particular passage. But we also learn something about Christ uh, because we recognize that not only is God sovereign, but he is specifically sovereign in working out to free us uh, in order to be in relationship with him. What do I mean by that? 
Uh, here, as I mentioned, the, the son of the prophet was facing the prospect of a debt that he could never have repaid. Uh, he, you know, losing this iron implement, this was way beyond. This was way beyond every, anything that he would ever own. This is way beyond anything that he could ever repay. Uh, and so Elisha, as a type of Christ here, in his generosity, moves to restore, redeem, and ransom uh, this young man from a debt that he could not repay. Who does that sound like? It's exactly right. Uh, here, Elisha is a type of Christ. Because Christ is the one that we heard in Colossians 2.13 that has canceled a debt that we could not repay. We could never repay the debt that we owe to God. It is too huge, too humongous. We could work all of our lives. We could be perfect with all but one nanosecond of disobedience and it would be a debt that we could never repay. But Christ... Uh, has taken all of our sins on Himself. And He has nailed them to the cross, canceling the debt that stood against us in order that we might be free of debt, in order that we might live free. Can you imagine the gratitude uh, that this young man had to Elisha? I mean, he was thinking about Oh my word, this axe head has flowed. I mean, it is gone. There is no way that we're ever going to get it back. And then it's floating and Elisha says, take it up. And he's like, praise be. I mean, hallelujah. Just the gratitude that swelled up in his heart because the debt that was standing in peril against him has now been uh, completely neutered. It has no power. And that is exactly how we are with Christ. May the gratitude in our hearts swell up uh, for recognizing that he has canceled the debt that lay, bef uh, that lay before us. A and then two things, just in this anthropocentric sense, you know, how it is then that we live in light of this great gratitude. Uh, the first is this. Uh, you know, State Farm says, like a good neighbor, right? State Farm is there. One of the things about this passage is it talks to us about community. You see the, the sons of the prophets coming together to meet a need. You know, we, we know what it's like to outgrow a facility. We're regularly sticking 500 plus people in a facility that was made for 350. The sons of the prophets have a, a similar problem here. They, they've grown and, and now they, uh, they face a challenge. So let's get together to solve this problem. Uh, and, and they all pitch in. Elisha, the prophet, uh, he goes down to, to help and they, they're working at construction a bigger facility to house their, their current needs. Uh, so they, they come together as a community, but when the community is threatened and when the community's place in the broader community is threatened, uh, there is a redemption not only of the individual need of the particular son of the prophet that we just talked about, but there is also a move to say, let's 
Uh, let's fix our reputation with the broader community or let's make sure that our reputation with the broader community is intact. I already mentioned to you this is one of the primary uh, qualifications for an elder. They must be well thought of by outsiders. Um, there is, uh, you know, throughout the, the scriptures, we see the importance of neighborliness. Job in Job 31 talks about, you know, sort of in his defense of his righteousness. And Job was known as the most righteous man on the earth at the time, which is why Satan tempted him. Uh, but Job was very concerned about his neighbors. If there's been anybody who has had need and they have not eaten at my table. I mean, he was so open to making sure that he was well thought of and the community was well thought of by the broader community. We see that, of course, with Jesus' uh, parable of the Good Samaritan and the importance of, of being good neighbors. I remember uh, a church uh, that was in a, a relatively small neighborhood. And this was a neighborhood uh, that they had covenants, you know, how much green space they could have and all these different things. Well, the church needed to build and there was, had some challenges. Uh, the, the neighbors were, were not really, uh, really favorable towards this and people were parking all over the place. And uh, and in the end result was they had nine lawsuits against the church. Uh, and that doesn't seem like a good way to go. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like the spirit of what is being talked about here. And actually, uh, a friend of mine then became the pastor. And one of the first things that he did was he went around and met with all the neighbors. And he rectified all those relationships. And then over the years, they were able to reach some common ground and they were able to build and make their... And it was better for everybody. But we need to work hard uh, as Christians to be good neighbors. And we've been wrestling with that throughout this virus. You know, what does it mean to be good neighbors to people? Uh, and it's not always clear. Uh, we, you know, there, there's a lot of wisdom that is needed from that. I, I wrote to you this Friday, just been really camping in, in James chapter 3, asking for wisdom from above uh, in making these decisions. But you see here in this passage the importance of, of being good neighbors. And then lastly, I'll just mention this, and I alluded it to you, uh, to you before, one of the things that this passage really highlights for us is that nothing is too small for God. You know, so often in the course of our life, we, we face things that we, we just don't bring before the Lord because we think that they're too unspiritual. We think that they're too small. We think that God doesn't really care about these things. You know, God cares about the saving of our souls, uh, but God doesn't really care about our cars. God doesn't really care about you know, the cut that I got on my finger that is really irritating me. God doesn't really care about these things that are unspiritual or too little. But one of the things that we see here is that God understands that He is either God over all or He is God, not God at all. And, and He is God over all. 
And so he encourages us to bring big things like we talked about last week. We need an heir. We need somebody who's going to carry forth the, the name of Christ. It's going to build the, the community even when Sarah is old and Abraham is old. This is a big thing, Lord. Can you step in and do it? But he also recognizes that we have small things in our life. Uh, you know, everything from how we're going to decorate our living rooms to, you know, the, the people that we're going to invite to Arts and Art and Rex camp. God cares about these things. And he invites us to bring those things to him because he is absolutely sovereign. God's sovereignty is the pillow on which we can rest our head and it is the invitation to bring things big and little uh, before him. So it's an interesting story. And, and as I've said before, you know, our goal is to say, what does it look like to be a disciple, a resilient disciple, one that follows God in big things and little things in the midst of a polytheistic world? Well, it reminds us that we are uh, redeemed and ransomed, that we belong to him, that he is sovereign, and there is nothing too big, there is nothing too little for our God. So will you pray with me?